Look with me at Luke chapter 8, Luke's gospel chapter 8 where we've been studying and this will be the fourth and final part of this section which I've called Eternity Hangs on Every Sermon. When we think about um, what we've been learning from the parable of the soils a couple of weeks ago when we finished that section, we're reminded once again that we have a responsibility and a stewardship with regard to our exposure to truth. In fact, you might think about it like this. Of all the truth you've been exposed to, what percentage of it have you appropriated? Think about that. Or maybe you don't want to think about that. What percentage of the truth that you've been exposed to have you actually been able to appropriate? I'm talking to Christians now. Unbelievers can't appropriate it at all until they appropriate the gospel. But it's a difficult question because obviously by weakness and limitation and the flesh and the world and struggle and all of those things, we hear a lot of truth and sometimes, depending on the season we're in, what we're hearing doesn't sink as deep as it should in our lives. We saw last time, just at the end of the parable of the soils, that the good soil hears the word, verse 15, in an honest and good heart. And notice what happens in the, those two words, good and honest, are just sort of synonymic. They, they're just conveying the idea of genuineness, receptivity, welcoming, believing, accepting. So the good soil with an accepting and receiving and believing and welcoming heart, notice what it does. It holds the word fast and it bears fruit and perseveres. So there is this ongoing bearing of fruit that endures, good fruit, solid fruit, real fruit, genuine fruit. A good and honest heart hears the word of God and believes it for what it is. When a believer hears the truth, because they're in Christ, they've already accepted the word of God in the gospel and the word about Christ as true, And then they are told to obey everything that he commanded. So we we as Christians come to the scriptures, we come to the word of God, and when we hear it, we believe it to be the absolute truth from the living and true God. And that it is revealed to fallen men and women by grace and mercy. We don't come to it and stand over in judgment on it. We don't get to tell it what to to tell us. We don't get to decide what it means by what it says. We, we don't get to sit in judgment on its authority or its content. We come to it and it is given to us by a mercy and grace. And the good soil takes it in and receives it as the message of salvation for sinners, salvation from judgment that is to come. We take the word of God as having revealed to sinners that They can know Jesus Christ and that he was God in human flesh and that he offered himself as a perfect guilt offering for sin and that having died and paid that penalty, God the Father affirmed it as useful, effective, real, true, and right and satisfying when he raised Jesus from the dead. That's how we receive the word. That's the good soil receiving the word, holding it fast, out of which then there will be this fruit that is born And we receive the word of God as Christians because we are those who believe that we have had all of our sins forgiven just as the word of God says and that from the moment we are forgiven, 
all the way forward on into eternity, we will, we will enter into the eternities because we are forever a part of God's beloved family. And so having heard that truth and accepted those truths as revealed by God, we then hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. And it's interesting that what Jesus or what Jesus is recorded as saying here by Luke is that this fruit is astronomical. It's amazing. It is beyond imagination. Matthew's gospel says some a hundredfold, thirtyfold, sixtyfold. The amounts aren't the point. The point is it's it's beyond what any farmer would ever expect. Good soil produces real fruit and lots of it because that's God's intention. Good soil demonstrates two things then. Good soil demonstrates a conviction of the truth that we have to speak. We can't, we can't not speak what we're convinced of. And so it leads us to tell others about the truth because of the conviction of the truth. That's what good soil does. It receives the word and is convinced of the truth of it. Secondly, it demonstrates a new capability to actually follow it, to follow the commands of Christ in love and in joy. And so it's the conviction to speak the truth and the capability to obey it that identifies us as good soil people. And that good soil, that fruit, never gets snuffed out. If it is good soil, then it perseveres. It never gets snuffed out. It's a faith and a conviction that never ultimately turns away and denies Christ never comes to hate Christ, never ceases to desire Christ. We might go into a season of difficulty or sin. We might become weak. We might at times have these doubts that have to be corrected by the scriptures. But even through all of that, a true good soil person holds it fast, bears fruit with perseverance in the sense that that faith and that conviction never ultimately turns away from Christ in denial and hatred and lack of love for him. It is also true that the power over sin, the new capability to fight sin, never ultimately disappears in a true Christian. It's always there to some degree. The true Christian always comes out of even seasons of weakness, confessing. They keep on confessing. They keep on striving. They keep on longing. They keep on depending. They keep on pressing toward glory. That is the sign of good soil. So good soil speaks and lives the truth. It's that simple. The other soils don't respond to the truth in faith, and so they don't, they don't bear genuine fruit. Either they have a hardened life of sin, and so in their faithlessness, men and women will give the truth no time of day, no consideration, and Satan loves to keep it that way. Or others initially hear the truth as though it were some sort of uh, pleasant, trouble-free addition to their morals and their worldview, but they have only shallow convictions about it. And then as we saw a couple weeks ago, there are many others who join up with Christianity sort of using it as an earthly benefit in their desire for comfort in this life. And yet the earthly pleasures that they want cannot coexist with the cost of following Christ. And so they fall away. And just as a side note by implication as we come into this section in Luke's gospel, just as a side note by implication, you can always distinguish between an unhealthy and a healthy ministry or church simply by examining how the people treat the word of God. How does that ministry treat God's word? How do they speak it? Do they speak it right from the text? 
with the authority of the text? How convinced are they of its truthfulness in every detail? How precise do they want to be with it? Who do they, what do they do when they're hearing it proclaimed? What do they do when it is preached? How do the leaders treat the word of God? Are they learning and maturing in their skills for understanding it? Do they have uh, an unashamed workmanship in the dividing of the truth? And what about that congregation and the capability and power to obey? When you look at those who have been there the longest in the churches, are those people bearing more and more fruit? Are they more like Jesus? More dependent upon him? More submissive to him as Lord? More reverent and worshipful? More courageous in their testimony? Are they more alert to sin's subtleties? Are they more discerning? Are they more passionate for the spiritual growth of other people in love? Are they more compassionate toward the plight of lost souls? And are they more hungry to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge? If you want to find out if a church is healthy, how does it respond to truth in those ways? And we saw a couple of weeks ago, or in the last few weeks, that a faithful ministry or a faithful Christian does exactly what Jesus does with the truth. They reach out with it. So a faithful ministry is outreaching. A faithful ministry is Christ-exalting. A faithful ministry is sacrificial. A faithful ministry is polarizing. That's the whole reason for the parable of the soils in this section. The truth just polarizes. You see what happens when people respond to it. But fifthly, and what I want to deal with today, these last two principles, fifthly, the faithful ministry is also appropriating. It appropriates the truth for various underlying spiritual reasons, which Jesus gives us here in verses 16 and following. Notice, follow along as we read, verse, beginning in verse 16. Now, no one after lighting a lamp covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. Because... Or four, nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So therefore, or so then, take care how you listen. Remember, that's the thesis statement of this entire section. Take care how you listen. In the original Greek, see to how you hear. (laughs) Just a little play on words to shorten it up and make it really concise for the hearers. Be very careful how you hear. Why? For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever doesn't have, even what he thinks he, sh- he has shall be taken away from him. Now stop right there. What is the issue Jesus is raising here? What is he talking about here? Well, it's, it's basically a warning about what kind of a, a disposition a person has when they're exposed to the truth. This is all about paying careful attention to how you respond to the truth and more importantly, the danger of squandering opportunities. The danger of squandering these opportunities. In fact, the beginning of verse 18, you'll notice it says either in your translation, so then, or some of your translations say, therefore. It's it's just a little original Greek conjunction which forces this entire discussion to a consequence. So in other words, based upon what verse 16 and 17 say, then consequently, this is how you must behave. This is what you must know. 
So based upon the analogy he's going to give or the little parable he's going to give in verse 16, and based upon the statement he's going to make in verse 17, then on that basis, consequently, you must think about this differently. You must not think about this casually. You must think about this in ways that are precise and careful and pay careful attention, close attention. The reason is because how you listen to the truth and how you respond to the truth will determine your relationship to the truth in this life and eternity. Notice verse 18, whoever has to him shall more be given and whoever doesn't have even what he thinks he has is gonna be taken away from him. You, know, you read that and you think, that seems unfair. I mean, if somebody doesn't have something, you give it to them, right? This is all about supply. Why is the guy who already has something being given more and the person who thinks he has something but has nothing, why is he being gypped? What's going on here? Well, that is to flip the whole point that Jesus is making. That's a mistaken idea about what's... That's that's sort of a sentimentalistic approach to this text because the point is completely the opposite. Here it is. If he's saying that if you appropriate the truth that you've been exposed to, if you appropriate it, you welcome it, you take it in, there is greater and greater access to more and more truth. So if you come toward the light and you walk in it, you'll have more and more clear light to walk by. That's his point. Look over at Hebrews 5 for just a moment. Keep your finger in Luke 8. We're going to walk through a few passages, but not too many. But Hebrews chapter 5. Notice verse 14. But solid food is for the mature. Solid food is for the mature. Who... Because of practice, practice in what? The solid food. Practice in appropriating, chewing on, understanding, and obeying the solid food. Believing it and obeying it. They have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Man, I want that. Man, I don't want to walk around the corner and be duped by some false teacher or some ideology. I don't want to go to university and be, and be completely blinded by something that's subtle. I don't want to be involved in a group of people and then there's a false teacher in the midst that subtly, secretly introduces some, something that will destroy me. I don't want to be taken in by somebody's crafty deceit. I want to know truth clearly, but that means I have to practice it to have my senses trained to discern those things. Jesus is about to teach us with this little passage in Luke 8 that if you ignore the truth, you're going to have a serious problem with discernment, clarity, and precision. In fact, back in Luke chapter 8, verse 18 says, whoever doesn't have, that that means whoever is not appropriating the truth, if you don't appropriate it, if you ignore it, or you just toy with it, Or worse, you repudiate it. If you do those things, then the access to truth for you gets more and more cut off. And if you walk away from the light, darkness begins to overtake your mind and your heart. Look over at Matthew 13 for a moment. Back to the very first gospel, Matthew chapter 13. These will be important texts to just sort of connect some dots. Matthew 13, verse 13, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, 
they don't see, and while hearing, they don't hear. In other words, I can speak the truth to this generation till I'm blue in the face. I can show them miracle after miracle till I'm blue in the face. I can show them my love and compassion. I can show them my sacrifice and humility. I can speak the truth to them, but while seeing, they don't see. Hearing, they don't hear. They don't understand. Verse 14, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you people keep on hearing, but you don't understand. You keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they've closed their eyes, otherwise they would see, and they would hear, and they would understand, and I'd heal them. So you have this this result, this consequence, this devastation, if you ignore or toy with or treat casually or just repudiate the truth, you're going to get darker and darker. You're not going to be able to understand. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, another text where Paul's talking to a church. These are professing believers. So you're not even here talking about the unbelieving nation of Israel. He's speaking about the Christians, the professing believers in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, and I, brethren, couldn't speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you're not able. Why weren't they able? Because in pride, they were puffing themselves up instead of going back to the example of Christ and following what he said in, their, in his command for them to love one another. They filled themselves up with pride, therefore they distanced themselves from the light of the truth, and they became less and less discerning. They couldn't even handle solid teaching. Back to that Hebrews 5 passage, back in verse 11 of that chapter, you don't have to go there, but just listen to it. He says, you've become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be the teachers, but you have need for someone again to teach you the elementary principles because you've come to need milk and not solid food. There it is. Look over one more text at John chapter 12, John's gospel chapter 12. This is a... It's a fascinating text here. Verse 35, John 12. Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you, so walk while you have the light, so the darkness won't overtake you. He who walks in the darkness doesn't know where he goes. And so while you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. Verse 37, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they weren't believing in him. And this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who's accepted it? This nation has not accepted any of it. And for this reason, they couldn't believe. Why? Because verse 40, he's blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts so that they won't see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted. As a judgment, God said, if you move away from the light, you toy with the light, you... You kick the light around on the floor. You repudiate the light. You say you're a greater light. You sit in judgment on the light and you get cut off from its usefulness. And listen, this just doesn't have implications for those that don't know the gospel. This has implications for believers. You'll be less and less discerning, less and less clear, less and less precise with biblical truth, less and less uh, perceptive in your application of it. You'll see sin with less and less clarity if you treat the Word of God in some sort of toying way. 
Back to Luke 8. That's why Luke adds this little event in Jesus' life in verses 19 to 21. Notice verse 19. His mother and his brothers came to him, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And it was reported to him, hey, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. How about a little, you know, greased slide to the top? How about a little nepotism here? Family members matter most. And then Jesus just shocks them in verse 21. He answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word and what? Do it. They appropriate it. They bear fruit. My family members, my beloved ones, the ones who are a part of my beloved family, they're not just hearers. They don't treat the truth casually. They don't repudiate it, toy with it, throw it around, toss it around, sit in judgment on it. They hear it and they do it. Those are the people that I consider my friends and my family and those who are of the inheritance of the kingdom. So how does Jesus address this? Well, verses 16 and 18, very simple. First of all, he gives a, a simple analogy. Verse 16, a simple analogy. Sometimes people call it a mini parable. Then verse 17, he gives a, a, a statement of accountability a statement of accountability, and we'll see how that ties together in a moment. And then thirdly, he gives a strong advisory. You have a simple analogy or parable. You have a statement of accountability upon which then you, you can base this response of yours, and he gives a strong advisory about how you ought to respond. So first of all, the simple analogy, or as some call it, a mini parable, verse 16. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. Luke's grammar here, by the way, makes it a clear connection to the parable of the soils. He's just driving the point home further about good soil. That's what he's doing. And notice that this little analogy, this little mini parable states what is patently obvious to anyone with normal reasoning capabilities. They had little lamps. They were little receptacles. They would put oil inside them to burn them. And he says, no one who, who lights one of those then covers it with a container. And by the way, in the Greek, it is emphatic. The pronoun is up front. So here's the idea. No one furnishes a lamp, puts oil in it, lights the wick, and then he himself, the same one who lit it to get light from it, covers it over and walks around in darkness. It's absurd. It makes no sense. Nor does he put it under a bed. That's literally the word for the place where you'd sleep. It's like a pallet or a stretcher or the place where you'd rest. Sometimes they were sitting around food tables, but these kind of pallets, but essentially this is speaking of somewhere in the back room where you would go to your private space and you take the, the absurdity of taking the lamp that you lit up for the entire house full of guests to see where they're going instead of smashing into things and you take the only lamp, you take it into the back bedroom, put it into the corner underneath where you sleep so that it only lights up where your feet are in a faint glow. That's absurd. It's absurd. You don't do that, he says, but he uses the strongest contrasting adversative, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. That's very obvious to them. That's the simple analogy. That's the simple parable. You light a lamp. You intend to have it serve its full purpose and its usefulness. The very idea that someone would acquire that lamp and furnish it with all that's necessary and then 
not take it to the guests so they could see where they're going or cover it so that he himself can't see what's in his own home when he intended to see in the first place. That's why he lit it. It's just ridiculous. Now, it's interesting that that this statement, Jesus said it over and over again in different contexts, using it to make similar, different but similar points. Matthew chapter 5, 14 to 16, you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He had just finished using this same statement. No one, you know, you're a city set on a hill and you're the light of the world. No one who lights a lamp uh, covers it over with this bushel or this covering. So let your light so shine before men that they see your good works. God intends when he lights a Christian's heart to spread that light around as a gospel light. It is silly for a Christian to not speak or live the truth and pretend or profess to be a Christian. It makes no sense. Notice in Luke chapter 11, just a couple chapters over, Jesus uses this same statement again in a different context, similar but different. Notice verse 29 of Luke 11, as the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation because it seeks for a sign and yet no sign will be given it to it but the sign of Jonah for just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. What's he talking about? Look, Jesus came to call men to repent and at the judgment, Jesus goes on to say, the Ninevites who repented after hearing far less truth are going to be there at the judgment to point fingers at this generation that he was talking to. Why? Because something greater than Jonah was there, Jesus himself. Truth was coming from the source of truth himself, and they rejected him, and so he says, you know what? At the judgment, the Ninevites are going to be there pointing the finger at them because the Ninevites repented with far less truth. Wow. Can you imagine that? And so then notice what Jesus says, verse 33, no one after lighting a lamp puts it away in a cellar nor under a basket, but on a lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. Same parable, same analogy, but notice the point, verse 34, the eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is clear, your whole body's full of light, but when it's bad, your body is full of darkness, so watch out that the light in you is not darkness. Don't ignore the truth, listen to it, Press into it, aggressively reach for it, accept it, don't sit in judgment on it. I mean, this last couple weeks, I've been immersed in chapters on the whole discussion of inerrancy and infallibility because I'm getting ready to do some sessions at this conference in New Zealand. And just having to wade through how many times evangelical scholars, I'm talking men who probably many of them know Christ and they, they are still holding the label evangelical and still want to maintain the label inerrancy and yet how many times, chapter after chapter, they sit in judgment on the supernaturalism of the scriptures. They sit in judgment on its miracles. They sit in judgment on the creation account. They sit in judgment on this text, this genre, this piece of literature. And I just think, you know, you're representing 
the danger that Jesus is referring to here in Luke eleven thirty five. Watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If the whole body's full of light, there'll be no dark part in it, but it will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. Look, if you want clarity, if you want discernment, if you want to know evil from good, if you want to see gospel truth for what it is and see error before it comes in to destroy you or your family, if you want that, you move toward the light, not away from it. You don't sit in judgment on the light. You come under it automatically, by faith. You don't ignore complications. Those are wonderful things to discuss. But the Scripture's self-testimony is clear. It is from God. And so the warning is, look, you should be very, very careful. How should we be careful? The analogy is simple. No, it's absurd. When God lights a light, to hide it. He doesn't want to hide it. He doesn't want you to hide it. He wants you to respond to it. What's the statement of accountability? Well, now here, here you have in verse 17 this statement of accountability which drives the whole thing. It's the driving force behind the whole point Jesus is making. Verse 17, For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Wow. There's two things happening here. By the way, the little coordinating conjunction between these two verses says that this is the basis for the analogy and the admonition in verse 18. This is the basis for it right here. There are two spiritual realities that, that force you to say, be careful. There are two spiritual realities you better think about as to how you respond to truth. Reality number one, God's very nature demands the exposing of all secret things. All secret things. It doesn't matter what goes on in God's universe under his sovereign control. Men may not be able to sort those things out. All kinds of things happen that we can't fully explain. All kinds of things happen that men can't completely solve or resolve. We can't fully bring to light. But know this, all things are moving inexorably toward a day of reckoning because God's very nature demands it. He is pure. He is holy. He's precise. He's perfectly clear. He's infallible, he's truthful, he's perfectly righteous, he's absolutely just, he is all-powerful, and he has majestic glory that must be displayed perfectly. So everything that goes on, all the truth you've been exposed to and all the ways you've responded to the truth, all the truth you've had and all the ways you've either not spoken it or spoken it, all the things we can't figure out, all the questions that are raised by philosophy and humanity as we sit in judgment on Scripture, all of it is being recorded, marked down, and there is this day toward which everything is inexorably moving. The character of God demands it. Matthew 10, verse 26 and following, Jesus said, look, don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Why? Because there is coming a day when God keeps score and all that is going to be. Everything that was done in secret against believers, against the truth, it's all coming out to the detail. We don't have time to go there, but John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, there's coming a day when Jesus will call and his voice will call every soul out of the grave. Every soul that's ever existed will stand before him and it said that all their deeds will be exposed for what they really were. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, I mean, this is, 
This is a text you cannot get around. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, don't go on passing judgment before the time. That is to say, don't make final conclusions about people's inner life because you can't see their inner life. You can only compare them to Scripture. But wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Wow. All your motives. All of them. So the first spiritual reality that this passage sits on is that how you've heard the truth, how many times you've heard the truth, how many ways you've responded to the truth, what you've done with the truth, all of that's going to come out. Nothing has ever been done that won't be revealed, if not in this life, certainly in the day that is coming in which God has fixed that day for Jesus Christ to judge. Acts 17.31. We kind of say it this way sometimes in contemporary parlance. Time and truth go hand in hand. Given enough time, the truth is going to come out. And why? Because we know this truth. Nothing that has been hidden will stay hidden. It won't. It's interesting how the play on on sort of terminology happens as Jesus was doing these things and Luke sort of records it. You remember he's hidden these truths from some people as a judgment, but there is coming a day when even, even the reason that he hid it from them and all of their secret motives against the truth are coming out. It's all coming out. There's no way around it. I sometimes think about how many words and thoughts and opinions people are spewing out over the internet don't you? I mean, before the internet, maybe you just walked around the rooms of your house and talked to the walls or whatever. <laughs> but people are sitting down, man. It is just going out. John 12, 34 says you're going to be held accountable for every single word. Might be Matthew 12, 34. Right now my mind is converging. Every single word. I think about that. I think about all these words and opinions going out. We used to say to our kids when they were growing up, you know, we used to quote Proverbs 19, uh, 10, 19, rather, all the time to them, where there are many words, sin is unavoidable. <laughs> but he who restrains his lips is wise. Boy, I, I don't want to be one of those guys. There's a long list of things coming out, you know, People today want to be teachers of other people. Let not many of you become teachers. Yours is the stricter judgment. And then I think about all the emails that people try to keep private and all their secret communiques and texts. All, all of them, they think they're all secret. They're not secret. You can hide them from people all you want. It's coming out. All of it. All your pictures, all your Instagrams, all your messages, all your private communiques, all those things are coming out in front of God one day. Mark it. It's all moving toward that time. And then there's, there's a second underlying reality here that has to do with believers. Notice that God is the one here, in one sense, who has lit the lamp, and he doesn't want it hidden. He wants it spread out. So God has lit the lamp of the gospel in the hearts of believers, and he never intended to light us up and then hide us. He puts us where we can be spread out so others can see the light. It's like Ephesians 5. Paul said, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, verse 8. 
and don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. That's what we're supposed to do. There's no such thing as a Christian who, who doesn't speak those things that they're called to speak. Because Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says, God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So it's a simple analogy and a statement of accountability upon which then uh, is built this consequence. We'll call it a strong advisory, verse 18. Strong advisory, so take care how you listen for whoever has... Whoever has been given light and you receive it, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have even what he thinks he has is going to be ripped from him. If you're a light that God has lit up with the gospel and you're speaking and living the truth, that's what you ought to be doing. You ought to be responding to truth, thinking about truth, caring for the truth, moving toward the truth, aggressively embracing the truth, looking to all the precision and clarity of the truth. That's what you need in your life. And as you move toward the light, your discernment's going to grow. You can be able to see things that, that you didn't see before. You're going to be able to have insight you didn't have before. You're going to be able to discern the issues of the heart the way that God intends and the way he sees your heart, right? Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verse 12, you, the word of God's sharper than a two-edged sword and it cuts between intentions and thoughts. Cuts down to the motive. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes you come to the scripture, you're, you know there are issues that have gotten all cloudy in your conscience and your mind. You come to the scriptures and it's just, <clears throat> it's piercing. And it's immovable. It's like an anvil. You run into it and you just get hurt because it doesn't move. And men who stand over it and sit in judgment on its clarity are, are fools because they're not sitting in judgment on it. It is going to come back and haunt them, just like Jesus told the Jews. Listen, you think that in the Old Testament, you following your own standard of righteousness, that you have eternal life. But I'm telling you, Moses spoke about me. And if you don't believe Moses, you're not going to believe a word I say. And it will be Moses on that day, he says, John 5, is going to come back and accuse you. So you got the Ninevites there accusing you. you got Moses there accusing you. you got the scripture there accusing you. And you have all those times you were exposed to truth and you toyed with it and repudiated it and set it aside. And all that is going to come out. The way you hear the truth over and over, but you constantly argue against it, will cause you to be ending up with less and less understanding. Your grip on spiritual realities will become loosened and you won't be able to have conviction anymore. Have you ever noticed that about people? Sometimes someone professes Christ, they're around you, but they, all they do is become skeptics and they argue with it. And the more they do, the more clouded their thinking comes, becomes, the more vulnerable they are to folly and pretty soon you find they're off. I mean, I saw guys in seminary go through that all the time. It's a grief come to seminary, they just love the word of God, apparently, but I don't know their heart. And sooner or later, somebody comes along and there's, there's something in them that wants some relationship with that part of the darkness. And so they begin to open the door to toy with the word of God or sit in judgment on it or approach it casually or even even just repudiated, and suddenly there's darkness, and pretty soon, it's just a few months, if not a few years, and they're off into agnosticism or skepticism or atheism, and there's no recovering. How does that kind of thing happen? You remember the guy in James 1, 
James 1 verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. The context is trials, but he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And he will give it to you generously and without reproach, it'll be given to you. Because that's the way God gives wisdom when you come. But, he says, verse 6, you must ask in faith without any skepticism. For the one who's a skeptic, the one who doubts, is like the sea. It's just this fluctuating water all the time. He never lands, never settles. He's driven and tossed by the wind. And verse 8 says, Let not that man expect that he'll receive anything from God, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. How does that kind of thing happen? Well, when you hear the truth. How many times have you been exposed to the truth and you've toyed with it, repudiated it, sat in judgment on it, didn't like it? Maybe perhaps things like like this come to your mind. I I don't want to feel any conviction that will force me to face some deficiency in my character. And so you, you sort of block, you put up a blockade. Or maybe you say, hey, look, I have a right to live a certain way the way I want, and nothing, not even Scripture, should infringe on those personal choices. Really? That's an authority issue. You're going to get darkened. Your discernment's going to go away. Some people say my personal happiness and fulfillment is most important. And if some teaching in the Bible challenges what makes me happy, I'm not going to hear it. I want a church, I want a ministry, I want a teacher, I want sermons, I want studies that make me feel happy the way I want to feel happy. All you're doing is sitting in judgment on this and darkness is coming in. My feelings and opinions ought to at least be validated by the church or other Christians, otherwise I'm not interested in examining scripture clearly, closely. The Bible should entertain me and pique my particular interests, otherwise it's not worth my time. And it should never infringe upon my comfort zone. Don't get too personal. How many times has the light been shined at you and you've suppressed it or treated it with contempt? That's the issue, beloved. There's the warning. Whatever you think you have, that's what the text says. Even someone who thinks he has the truth, if he throws up internal arguments in judgment of God's word rather than softly embraces it, he will be moving in the direction of darkness. And what truth he even thinks he has will be taken from him. Access to truth will be cut off more and more. And this is even a warning to us as Christians. Don't think you can long ignore the precision and clarity of Scripture and what you're learning without spiritual discernment starting to go away. In the churches in Revelation, they're all professing believers, but Jesus keeps saying to them, I'm going to take away your lampstand. I'm going to take away your influence. Why? Because you're not responding to truth the way that you need to respond to it. You're not submitting to me. It's all about you. That's why, by the way, Luke adds that little event. His mothers and his brothers came, couldn't get to him. It's reported. Luke, Luke adds this to sort of drive home the exclamation point. Hey, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. They want, they want you. You're the source of truth. You're their family. They're close to you. He says, no. Do you know who is my family? Someone who doesn't repudiate the truth, stand in judgment on me. Someone who comes to me as one who hears what I say and just wants to do it. 
Someone who hears what I say and just says, I believe that. I believe that's the truth from the living and true God. I believe that's the ultimate authority. I believe that has sway in my life. I believe that I have no right to sit there and make it say what I want it to say and redefine things the way I want to redefine them. I do not want my ears tickled. That's the kind of person... A faithful ministry is appropriating and a faithful ministry is life-transforming. It's fruit-bearing. It bears fruit. James 1 says it this way, prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Jesus will say it this way in John 15, God has appointed you, chosen you and appointed you as a Christian to go and bear much fruit and that your fruit should remain. You know what? He doesn't want you to get undiscerning, blinded, duped. You know, sometimes you can find people in traditions and denominations. They've been sitting in their pew and in their, their church chair for a long time, and they've professed Christ for a lot of years. And sometimes I will meet someone who's been in Christ for 50-plus years, but you ask them the simplest question about their Lord and Savior, and they have a mantra, but in their personal life, they don't talk about Christ, and they're not interested in the precise way of living according to his commands at all. It's the most amazing thing to watch. It's perhaps why the postmodern generation got so tired of the lack of passion in the church because there people sat listening to the same guy drone on and not really paying attention to what he's saying, not looking to the word. And so the church just becomes kind of this traditional place where people just come in, they sit there, they do nothing with it. The younger generation grew up under that and said, you know, we're tired of that. Where's your passion? They've swung the pendulum over here in sort of a reckless kind of thing. But nonetheless, you can see why they did that. They got so tired of the lifeless, dead person who says, oh, I love Jesus. Well, yeah, but do you live it? Do you speak it? Well, no, my spirituality is kind of private. Private? God lit you as a lamp. He's not putting you in the bed. He puts you on a lampstand and says, light it up. Light your world up. There's no such thing as a private, secret little thing. God wants his gospel exposed, and if you're going to respond to truth by hiding it, even that's going to be exposed one day. Jesus says, you want to know who my beloved family members are? Those who hear my word, they just accept it for what it really is, like the Thessalonians. Do you know why the Thessalonian church got so strong so fast? Because they accepted the word of God, chapter 2, for what it really is, God's holy, authoritative, pure word. And it was performing its work in those who believe. Listen, I hope that generations in this host, increasingly hostile environment, generations right here in this church will be brighter lights than we ever were. I hope so. But it won't happen if you ignore or toy with or repudiate what you hear. How many sermons have you heard and how much of it have you appropriated? It's kind of offensive, isn't it, to your heart? But it's right. Listen, beloved. Jesus said it. You don't want the access to more truth cut off because you're stubborn. So good soil softens, holds fast, believes it, bears fruit. Amen? Father, thank you for this passage. Oh, 
We so long to just open our hearts to your truth. We are foolish so much of the time. We argue with this. We kick against that. We, we move towards sin over here. We find ourselves guilty over here. We, we hide and cover over here. We just don't do what you've called us to do, and that's just to come to the light. Help us to come to the light and take care how we listen so that what we've been given will be the access to more and more light, discernment, truth, precision, clarity. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us your power to see and know by your spirit how to live. May we be convinced of the truth, speak it, May we have the capability in your spirit to live it. May we open ourselves to it in humility and simply believe it and follow it. We pray in your holy and powerful name. Amen.